You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And uh, I think it, what's interesting about her uh, background is sort of this convergence of government and private sector. Uh, increasingly, that, that's highly relevant and of interest to our, our national security. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at increased skepticism over the use of gunshot sensing technology. I'm digging into class action lawsuits on the heels of ransomware. And later in the show, my conversation with Luke Tenery. He's a partner at Stone Turn. We're going to be discussing the recent confirmation of Jen Easterly as director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, uh, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you kick things off for us? So my story comes from Motherboard um, by Vice, but it is not Joseph Cox. It what? is Todd Feathers. I know. So we are we are betraying our uh, unrequited love on this Maybe podcast. Maybe Joe is on vacation this week. He, yeah. he must be, yeah. Okay. Uh, so the uh, title of the article is Police Are Telling ShotSpotter to Alter Evidence from Gunshot Detecting AI. Hmm. So if you haven't heard of ShotSpotter, it is this technology where, based on artificial intelligence— the government, law enforcement can detect supposedly where there has been a gunshot. Mm -hmm. Uh, It tries to match the sound that's heard with a location. It's all, you know, put on separate coordinates, and it's used to try and solve uh, homicide crimes. Right. So there are microphones placed around a city. Right. And by using triangulation and the, you know, we know how fast sound travels— so by using math and artificial intelligence. I was reliably informed there would be no math in this podcast. But. <laughs> the, uh, they, uh, they can, um, they allege or, or they claim that they can uh, pinpoint where something like a gunshot may have taken place. That's right. That's right. Uh, the problem is there is a human element to this. And what we found out from this article is that Police departments are altering some of the data that comes in through this artificial system. Hmm. So the hook in this article is an incident in Chicago where uh, a 25-year-old was shot in the head, dropped off at a hospital, and died two uh, two days later. Hmm. Uh, The police arrested a suspect, and it turns out uh, there was video surveillance of this suspect's car pulling up in the area where the crime was committed. So the police claimed that ShotSpotter was 
uh, one of the microphones used as part of the shot spotter system detected the sound and location of the gunshots, and that generated uh, an alert for that particular time in that particular location. Hmm. And they were preparing to bring that evidence into court. When they looked under the hood, it turns out that an analyst uh, had altered the data for a shot spotter that changed the time and the location and reclassified it overrode the algorithms and reclassified the sound as a gunshot, even though it probably was actually a firework. This was a homicide that took place during widespread protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Hmm. We know based on the research done in this article, this is not the first time that this has happened. It's happened in other cities that have deployed shot spotter technology where the artificial intelligence is reasonably good. It's not entirely accurate. Uh, but sometimes the uh, alert that's generated by ShotSpotter doesn't match the known uh, circumstances surrounding the crime. So police alter the evidence to uh, to fit the location and the time of the crime in order to assist their own prosecution. Hmm. Uh, so the defendant in this case, with the help of his attorney, filed what's called a fry motion, which is a request for the judge to figure out whether whatever this forensic method is, is actually scientifically valid. And the prosecutors in this case were like, you know what? Forget the shot spotter thing. Let's, <laughs> let's not use that data. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and prosecute him on something else. Oh, uh, so, so faced with more scrutiny from the judge, rather than uh, face that scrutiny, they dropped that particular evidence. They did, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it seems like there's enough evidence to sustain a conviction without the shot spotter data here. Mm. That's not going to be true in every case. There are going to be some cases where the only evidence they have is this shot spotter data. Yeah. So when they, nobody's really looked under the hood besides the company that, that manufactured shot spotter to understand exactly how it works. Hmm. Uh, and now we have a bunch of documented uh, incidents all across the country. Um, one they talked about in Rochester, New York, where law enforcement are using the incoming data from shot spotter as, as kind of a starting off point before they edit the data to match the circumstances that they want to portray wow. as part of this prosecution. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <laughs> So this is obviously a a large problem. Uh, The question is whether the use of this technology is worth it in the first place, because if you have this risk that prosecutors uh, and uh, law enforcement have the option of overriding this data, obviously that's ripe for abuse. Now, that might be justified if ShotSpotter was was useful, if the data showed that it was useful in, uh, you know, heightening conviction rates for, for homicide and for protecting the public. And it seems like from the data presented in this article and data I've seen elsewhere that it's not really an effective law enforcement tool. Hmm. Uh, in the cities uh, where it's been deployed, there hasn't been uh, a decrease in gun-related crimes. And, you know, that's been replicated all over the country. Uh, and even though ShotSpotter says that, you know, the technology has gotten more accurate with time, it just seems like... When you have these circumstances in which the data coming in from the sound centers doesn't match with the, what law enforcement wants to see and wants to portray, yeah. we have this large potential for abuse. So I think we're going to start to see many of these these clients of shot spotters, which are some of the largest uh, police departments in the country, start to show some skepticism about whether to deploy this technology uh, into the future. And of course, the unspoken truth here is there's a massive racial disparity in the use and deployment of shot spotter technology. 
we know based on the data uh, that was obtained by Motherboard that, as you would expect, most of these sensors are placed in heavily minority communities. Mm. The They talked about the city of Chicago, which I know relatively well. Uh, there are white enclaves they talk about in the north and northwest of the city uh, where there are no sensors whatsoever, mm. uh, even though gun crime is spread throughout all areas of the city, not just those areas that happen to be highly populated by minority populations. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people who are prevalent in community relations say, you know, I'm, this this technology hasn't really done anything for us. Uh, you know, maybe the police are responding faster, uh, but, you know, we're not, it's not improving overall community law enforcement relations. They come in with this militarized response. Uh, it's not exactly helpful in building relationships with, with residents. Uh, so long story short, seems to be a lot of problems with ShotSpotter and particularly with law enforcement trying to manipulate the data to match their pre-existing conclusions. Yeah, what struck me in, in this article was uh, they cite an example from 2016 in Rochester, New York, uh, where police stopped uh, the wrong car and they shot the passenger in the back three times. Um, and there, so there were a total of four gunshots uh, fired uh, and shot spotter data tracked that there were four um, uh, gunshots. Um, but the police went back to the, – the police were claiming that this person in the passenger seat had fired at them and they were responding to that. Uh, and they went back to shot spotter and it, it – <laughs> I, the way I read this article is that they went back to ShotSpotter and said, hey, could you find a fifth shot there for us? That that yeah. would be really helpful. Uh, and and they did. Um, and it's not just – it's not the only example of that where it seems like, you know, police went back and told ShotSpotter what they were looking for and then the ShotSpotter folks took another look at the data, overrid in, the in algorithms. In quotations, yep. Yeah, overrid the algorithms and – sort of delivered what their client needed to go to get their prosecution, right? To, to get their conviction, I suppose. Yeah, and in this circumstances, it seems that the company and the Rochester Police Department, and this is not at all suspicious, lost, deleted, and or destroyed the spool and or other information containing sounds pertaining to the officer-related, uh, uh, officer-involved shooting. Mm-hmm. What a coincidence. <laughs> they also pointed out that in this case, uh, the police refused the victim's multiple requests to test his hands and clothing for gunshot residue. In other words, he was claiming that he did not fire a shot. Uh, and as you know, anyone who's watched procedural crime uh, TV shows knows that there's 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 likely residue on someone's hands when they fire a weapon, right? From the from the gunpowder. Yes. And they refuse to test him for that. So uh, a lot of things don't add up here. And um, seems to me, uh, at the very least, uh, I I guess. Look, there there could be very well be uh, great value in ShotSpotter's technology here, right. but it seems to me like they have to clean up their own house and resist the temptation to give their clients what they want. They they have to keep themselves separate from these requests to hey take a closer look at this data and. Uh, don't you think there was another shot there? Yeah. Nudge, nudge, wink, take, wink. Take another look. Yeah, I think there are, you know, a couple of root problems here. One is that the data that shot the data that ShotSpotter has produced 
to defend uh, its own use among these large police departments hasn't been independently fact-checked. The algorithms that they use haven't been independently evaluated. Mm. Um, all of this is just kind of what ShotSpotter has claimed in its own marketing materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just it hasn't received the type of oversight that would lead you to trust the deployment of this type of technology. And as I said, there's no empirical data that it has a... Uh, it puts any downward pressure on on gun gun crimes being committed. Mm-hmm. To, frankly, it just kind of seems like a recipe for uh, abuse, and and frankly, uh, something that would fo- f- foster further distrust between the community and law enforcement. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that sounds good in theory, right? Uh, right. But now that we're seeing how it actually works in practice. Uh, including, you know, the ab- abuse we've seen from law enforcement, it just looks far less appealing in practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be interesting to see how this plays out. All right. Well, again, that uh, is from uh, Motherboard uh, by Vice, uh, written by Todd Feathers. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story this week comes from the Washington Post. It's written by Garrett DeVink, uh, and it's titled First Came the Ransomware Attacks, Now Come the Lawsuits." Uh, I suppose there's nothing terribly shocking about <laughs> this this course of action. The here. lawsuits always come. Something bad happens. <laughs> Somebody, uh, yeah, yeah. So really, what uh, what they're documenting here is that in the aftermath of ransomware attacks, and in this case, they're, they uh, particularly are talking about uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack, where the the pipeline was shut down uh, and we ended up with some fuel shortages along the southeastern United States. Well, you know, lots of people were affected by that, not the least of which were the owners of gas stations. Yeah. They, their pumps, they, they, they were out of they gas. They dried up. So if you go for a couple of weeks with no gas, that, of course, is going to hurt your bottom line, uh, your ability to maintain your business. And so these folks are going after people like Colonial Pipeline and saying, you had insufficient cybersecurity, uh, and so we're going to sue you for that. So I'm curious what you make of this, Ben. I mean, is this – I guess what I'm wondering is in the world of supply chains, to what degree can I go after my suppliers – uh, for for not being able to provide me with the things I need to run my business, shouldn't I have insurance for just this sort of thing? Would, wouldn't that take up some of the slack? Like, where do things generally fall with these sorts of of uh, claims? So, to answer your broader question, of course, you can have a, a cause of action if your supplier, you know, if there's a breach of contract, if they've guaranteed that they're gonna, you know, in some sort of legal binding legal agreement that they're gonna supply you with something and they don't supply it, you have a cause of action against them. Mm. You know, or if they are, you know, if if they cause any sort of substantial injury to either, you know, a business or a customer, and whether that injury is physical or financial, that's a tort. Uh, So they've committed a legal wrong and they can be held liable in court for that. Mm -hmm. So that's true from a broader sense. Right. To, to focus more narrowly on ransomware itself, I think the legal landscape is largely undefined, and that's going to be the issue here. Hmm. Generally, when we're talking about tort cases, you have to prove that a defendant breached the standard of care. Uh, this is, you know, has, has long given law students and attorneys great frustration 
because it's a relatively uh, malleable standard. <laughs> it's a bit fuzzy. It's a bit fuzzy. <laughs> uh, basically, you just have to act in a, a way that would be reasonable to people who are similarly similarly situated. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you, uh, let's say, um, you know, are, are negligent in how you set up a building and that building crumbles and, you know, people get hurt or die, they'll look at, you know, comparable building constructions, mm-hmm. what, what the custom is in the industry or, you know, whether maybe there's a statute that, uh, you know, governs the safety standards for buildings. That right. would be good evidence as to what the standard of care is and whether that standard has been breached. You built your house out of straw when everyone else was using bricks. Yeah, I feel like there was a, a fairy tale fable about that, <laughs> but... Um, but uh, that, that's a topic for another podcast. Okay. Uh, so in the realm of ransomware, it's it's relatively new in a legal sense. Again, the legal world moves very slowly. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really developed what the standard of care is. And mm. I think that leaves companies pretty vulnerable to, to lawsuits. You know, at the very least, being forced to settle. Because um, a potential plaintiff could say, this is what similarly situated companies did to protect their data. This is what, you know, the industry practice is. You didn't conform to that practice. That's pretty compelling evidence that there has been a breach of that duty and thus a, a uh, justiciable legal injury. Hmm. Um, we're not at that point yet because, you know, I don't think the legal system has recognized exactly what that standard is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as this article makes clear, um, you know, you just kind of need to find the right court and the right circumstances. And if you fail, you know, if you fail to do one thing to protect your data, uh, and that's something that a court is willing to recognize, then you are going to be liable to a whole bunch of uh, of people, either customers or, or uh, other businesses. Hmm. Um, so... You know, I would expect that some of these lawsuits are going to succeed, especially if you find evidence that they violated custom uh, or, you know, some of the more common industry standards. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I would not be surprised. Not not all of these cases are going to be successful, um, but I would not be surprised if, if some of them are. Yeah, this article points out that uh, Chris Krebs, who is uh, formerly the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, um, he has made the suggestion that perhaps the government could require a certain level of security from companies that work in critical fields like utilities. Right. So st- st- uh, regulation is establishing a, a minimum standard. Right. And then that would be the standard of care. And if they breach that standard, then you have, you know, the tort. Mm-hmm. What the article also makes clear is you can develop pretty stringent standards and then Something happens, you know, the old lady who works in accounting accidentally clicks on the wrong link uh, and, you know, maybe you had incredibly strict security protocols, but you just got unlucky that one day. Right. Um, Somebody kicked the plug out of the the server that protected the system or something. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that might still subject you to legal liability if we're coming up with standards and maybe that's, um, you know, the best way to resolve this problem. But I can see why it's kind of a confusing area of the law. Um, we're not exactly sure what the what the standard is. Uh, it hasn't really been widely adopted in our court system. Yeah. And until there is a standard that's adopted, people are just going to keep throwing lawsuits at the wall um, mm-hmm. because, you know. Why not? Yeah, they talk about a gas station here who, uh, you know, the, their business was basically ruined for a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they lost out on a lot of revenue because their supply was cut off. 
you know, that really hurt somebody somebody's bottom line, it would be, you know, it would be equitable for them to be able to seek some type of judicial relief here. Yeah. Um, and and so I think everybody who has suffered because of a ransomware attack, until we have a recognizable judicial standard, is just going to kind of try to throw things at the wall and, and see what sticks. Um, so I think we are going to see a, a growing body of lawsuits in this area, as this article describes. And, you know, I, I mentioned uh, insurance as a possible backstop for these sorts of losses. And uh, just unrelated to this article, I was looking at some other uh, coverage this morning, and um, uh, they were saying that insurance policies are going have been going up by about 400 percent lately. Cyber insurance policies, the costs of them, I think they were talking about uh, there was a, a city, a municipality in Alaska that had been paying $50,000 a year for their cyber insurance. And uh, this year, when they went to re-up, there was only one company who was interested in covering them and and the bill went up to $200,000. So we're talking about some, we're, we're talking about real money, but I think we're also talking about um, as the insurance companies start to have more data, mm-hmm. they're able to price these things more realistically. And they're properly evaluating risk, saying, right. yeah, uh, this is becoming more likely. It's not only becoming more likely, but we can see how large the damages are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to a municipality. Uh, it can happen to a federal entity. It can happen to a hospital system. It can happen to a private corporation. Yeah. Um, but now we know what the potential effects are, and to cover those costs, um, yeah, you're going to need to pony up some increased premiums. Right, I mean, and it's it's interesting to me that that I mean that's another pressure point, right? That's another uh, element to make to for 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 people to react to to go back to the other participants in this system and say, okay, uh, listen, I can't afford this cyber insurance, right? So what are we going to do here, gang? You know, whether it's regulations or the federal government stepping up or whatever, you know, it's, I guess what I'm saying is none of this happens in a vacuum and it's all every, the it's little- part of the same ecosystem. Yeah, the push and pull from one part will affect the others. And yeah. as you point out, this is all relatively new in the great greater scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I will say it's not new in terms of, like, the the ransomware aspect of it is new, but the interplay between legal liability and insurance, I mean, we can look at legal malpractice, uh, which, you know, obviously I'm more familiar with, not Mm -hmm. personally, (laughs) uh, but having had to study professional responsibility, (laughs) but then something like medical malpractice, like... Uh, you know, we have some really complicated laws and regulations that go along with that. It's still a very controversial issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously relates to the cost of um, buying uh, insurance, malpractice insurance for providers. Right, right. Uh, because it took a while for that field to develop. I mm-hmm. mean, what exactly is the standard of care there? Is there a heightened standard of care for medical professionals? Um, what kind of evidence is going to be used in, in, in cases? I mean, that has developed um, in our in our common law system, but it has taken a while to develop. Yeah, um, and I think you know the insurance industry has has moved along with the risk of uh, medical mal- malpractice. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here as we're ta- as we're dealing with ransomware. 
All right. Well, good stuff. Uh, And again, we'll have links to all of the stories uh, we covered today in our show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. You can also call in and leave your question. The number is 410-618-3720. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Luke Tenery. He is a partner at Stone Turn. And our conversation centered on the recent confirmation of Jen Easterly as director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Here's my conversation with Luke Tenery. Yeah, she served previously in the government. Uh, she's a West Point grad, uh, very well-educated in that sense, um, spent uh, some time in the private sector also at a uh, financial institution. I believe it was Morgan Stanley. And uh, I think it, what's interesting about her uh, background is sort of this convergence of government and private sector. Uh, increasingly, that, that's highly relevant and of interest to our, our national security. Also, interestingly, um, her role at Morgan Stanley, she worked in a role that's uniquely situated her uh, to bring different sort of operational units together or sources of information to kind of defend cybersecurity, she, she led Morgan Stanley's Fusion Resilience Center. And what generally what a fusion uh, center means is its organizations are what are typically silos coming together to share information for the greater good or defense. And that's very much what, what CISA is designed to do. Um, it, it's a collection of, of resources in many ways or collection of information or uh, agenda to uh, support different areas of, of government and critical infrastructure. And so in many cases, it was, it's a, probably a job that uh, she's very well prepared for. Yeah. And, and it seems that her nomination was not controversial. She, she received uh, praise from uh, both Congress and, and the media alike. Um, where do you expect we're going to see her taking the organization and any clues from her past? Yep, I, I think it's very much the um, you know, she, her experience aligns with the the spirit and mission of CISA. So, I think firstly, there's an opportunity for her. Her hire uh, tells me that uh, the government uh, is looking to share important uh, cyber defense and intelligence information better, both intergovernment, but then also with 
enhance fidelity perhaps with the private sector. Uh, with her background, uh, particularly in, in the financial services arena, she'll carry some level of, of, of bona fides and, and trust as someone, not just a, you know, a former, uh, only a, with former government experience and know, know how around the, what's oftentimes the bureaucracy of government, but likely knows how to get things done in the private sector as well. What, what information is valuable to the private sector from a cyber defense perspective? Uh, what information is, is going to be valuable to the government? Uh, coming from potentially the private sector as well. I think that's an important thing to note. The government is interested in, you know, getting visibility into, you know, this, this, the overall security of the private sector as well. So she uh, likely will support that. And I think CISA, uh, another critical role is, you know, it plays sort of a support and a functional role in helping uh, different aspects of critical infrastructure respond to cyber attacks as well. A uh, perfect example was with solar winds, much kind of discussed at this point uh, and, and not much new to say about it, but they played a critical role in getting uh, what we would call the, the, the TTPs or tactics, techniques and procedures or indicators of compromise of that attack out to the public. CISA had a critical role in that and she uh, likely will we'll bolster that uh, with her resiliency background at Morgan Stanley. She'll know very well what it's like to have a, a high-performing and global uh, resiliency or response function. And so uh, hopefully that means uh, CISA is looking to kind of optimize that uh, even better uh, as it spans you know, public, private, and supporting critical infrastructure. Do you think it's noteworthy that she came back from the private sector and and uh, decided to to serve the nation in in this role? I I absolutely do. I think um just in general private sector uh organizations that are very interested in obtaining high quality or reliable information from the government and how they can better protect themselves, better defend, understand the landscape of how resources and candidly the the need to support the bottom line. You know, organizations are very interested in having, you know, almost a, an advocate or at least someone who understands the challenges uh, of a private organization on the government side. And, but also that, you know, the differences between the types of information that, they'll respectively have, you know, she'll likely have some level of clearance and access to in intelligence and, and information requiring clearances that the private sector doesn't, but she'll have a good sense of, you know, how to probably navigate that, but while still, you know, being a helpful resource to, to private organizations that are supporting critical infrastructure. So I think that understanding will be really important. Uh, so definitely very notable in that sense uh, to, you know, gain trust likely more with, with private industry as well. Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, it could be her ability to switch languages, to be able to to know the lingo from both sides, having spent time on both sides. That's going to be a real benefit for her. Absolutely. There's definitely a, a lexicon of risk management that one learns in private industry on 
you know, understanding the critical assets of a, of a private organization. Private organizations have to make decisions every day in cybersecurity based upon trade-offs and the resources they have available and the, the level of risk appetite that that organization has. And so, you know, they don't, most of private organizations don't have unlimited resources to always invest in cybersecurity. So I think she understands that trade-off. Uh, she has likely communicated that in a variety of her roles uh, in an upward way to executive leadership. That'll be important for her too in her role with, with other sort of um, executive leaders or um, heads, department heads, et cetera, uh, throughout the government as well. So that will serve her well, the lexicon uh, and vernacular that she picked up from the private sector most certainly will will benefit her as she kind of works uh, as, you know, supporting critical infrastructure, but integrating with uh, the, the government in her role as well as the private sector and, and supporting their their coverage of critical infrastructure. You know, as you and I are recording this, uh, just this morning, President Biden issued uh, the National Security Memorandum on Improving Cybersecurity for Critical Infrastructure Control Systems. It seems that if if anything, this focus on cybersecurity is accelerating, um, and I think it enjoys a status as one of the few things in government that really has good faith bipartisan support. You know, it's it's non-controversial to be in support of of these things. What do you what do you think that means for the role of CISA itself as we go forward? The 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 role it will play within government and in the importance uh, it will take on this global stage. I, I think it's increasingly notable on a on a variety of levels. You know, especially we were reminded with the colonial pipeline attack. You know, many people were affected firsthand you know, by that cyber attack. That was uh, an attack upon critical infrastructure um, in the, the energy supply chain, essentially. So I think these issues have kind of hit firsthand on both sides of, of the aisle. And I think there'll be dynamics of, of CISA's role there to improve and or further bolster um, security and focus around critical infrastructure. I think also it it probably is, is sort of a broken record at this point, but, um, and I've, I've weighed in on this and other kind of media opportunities, but the, the government is behaving in a way uh, of an organization that has been recently uh, and deeply compromised from a cybersecurity perspective. This, make no mistake about it, the SolarWinds attack is still the, the watershed event um, that is is driving change. The colonial pipeline uh, event was just sort of further driver to to cause action in that sense. This this is an administration that realizes that you know they've been cut pretty deeply and they're regaining footing from a visibility calling to action additional resources. Uh, I think this this NIST announcement today. Um, and similar to the executive order in the last couple of weeks is a calling to, you know, force different entities into adhering to certain cybersecurity best practices. And hopefully it also means, because just generally it's, it's often an issue, that more resources and funding are coming to support um, these efforts 
and uh, but but generally critical infrastructure, uh, absolutely a focus. Colonial Pipeline was, you know, a significant sting in that respect, and the government is is looking to you know further bolster the resources there. Is it your sense that that CISA is getting the the funds that it needs, the resources it needs? I, I think it's certainly getting a focus point, um, and I can. Um, Mostly, uh, without knowing um, or, or, or deeply looking into the you know the financials that are that are public on on CISA, it's clear um, in my experience, most notably in responding to a variety of global cybersecurity incidents, that there the fidelity of information and the value of it has gone up. The reliability of their service has gone up. Uh, I was actually very pleased with. Uh, the near real-time uh, information provided around solar winds and other more recent cyber attacks that allowed organizations to have reliable information on how to protect and, and mitigate some of these issues. Uh, so from my standpoint, combined with the, the investments in, in, in highly qualified uh, people, that, that they are making the right, some of the right choices to date, uh, in at least most, most optically with, with some of their appointments. All right, Ben, what do you think? I mean, she seems pretty good, right? I can't, I, I think you can't really. <laughs> so I, I think I mentioned in the interview, it's hard to imagine someone better qualified for this job than Jen Easterly. She's like, absolutely qualified. And I think one of the points that was made in the interview uh, is that having experience in the private sector is so crucial, mm-hmm. um, you know, because if you're just a government bureaucrat who hasn't actually been in the real world in private organizations, right. in these types of consortiums where you have to get a bunch of different stakeholders at the same table, you just don't ha- carry that same level of experience. So I think her nomination and uh, was was obviously very well received. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think you can evaluate somebody until uh, the rubber starts to hit the road and we'll see what happens with CISO over the next several years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly feel better about her nomination and confirmation after having listened to that interview. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, our thanks to Luke Tenery for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. The IT world used to be simpler, You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.